Amen. All right. So again, new series made for more. My prayer is that throughout this series that the word of God would prepare you to navigate very well whatever it is that he has called you to. And everyone, here's the thing that we, we need to kind of get on board with. All right. This is where every one of us need to find common ground. Every single one of you were called by God to do something. Okay. Every one of you. It's not just pastors, it's not just church staff, every single Christian, every person who would be a follower of Jesus Christ has been created and called for a great purpose. Um, because every one of us uh, have a, um, a made-for moment, right? Like every one of us are going to have that. There was a moment in your life when you maybe thought about what is this about, what is life about, uh, maybe you had a moment where you said, you know, I just feel like there's more to life than what I'm experiencing. Maybe there's more to my faith than what I'm currently experiencing. Uh, and I think all of us have probably had those, probably uh, multiple made for moments, uh, made for more moments in life. And I'll, I just want to share with you a couple of mine just so you can sort of grasp what I'm going after. Made for more moment in my life. Uh, there were probably many, but the first one that I'm going to talk about is uh, happened to me in 1994. Uh, in 1994, I was in the Navy. I was living in California and uh, dating a girl that lived in, in uh, Florida, uh, in my hometown where I was from. And so we had been dating. As a matter of fact, uh, we had been dating for a little while, and I was crazy about this girl. I mean, I, I thought, like, this is the person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And so much so that when I came home on leave in the summer of 1994, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. And so uh, after, uh, obviously after saying yes, it's like, all right, let's figure out what we're going to do, because I live in California, and the Navy's not going to let me come home on the weekends, so you're, you're probably going to have to move to California. So in October of 1994, she flew out. We toured the city, looked at San Diego. I showed her all the places. Uh, we went and did a few things, and then uh, we looked at some places potentially where we could live. And um, that was October of 94. In November of 94, so just one month after her flying out, um, it, it all ended. It came to a screeching halt in one gut-wrenching phone call. She and I were having a conversation, and all of a sudden she was like, hey, I, I just don't know if we ought to be so serious. And I'm like, well, what, what do you mean be so serious? Like, you said yes to marrying me, and now all of a sudden you don't want to be serious. I don't think it gets any more serious than that. And we just ended it right there. I mean, it was, it was one of those moments in my life that I, I thought, my goodness, like I, I thought I knew who I was going to spend the rest of my life with, and now I have like no one in my life. Um, I was devastated because all of my plans, again, destroyed in one gut-wrenching phone call. The second um, moment that I want to share with you happened to me in 1996. Two years later, I get out of the Navy. Uh, my time was up. I, I, um, I got... I moved back home. Actually, I didn't move back to my hometown. I moved to Jacksonville, Florida. Moved to Jacksonville, got a job um, with uh, working in the area of the skill set that I had been taught in the Navy. Uh, got a job over there. The job was good. Uh, business was going good. And um, income was, uh, had increased. And so I decided, hey, you know what? Income's good. Job's good. Looks like there's job stability here. I'm going to go buy a new car. So I went out, got me a new car. Uh, in probably July, June, July of uh, 1996. And then in September, I think it was late September, probably early October of 1996, I came into the office one day. My boss calls me and he says, hey, I need to talk to you for a second. I say, okay, yeah, sure, what's going on? He says, listen, um, business has really slowed down. 
And he said, we have, we have hardly enough work just to keep the office people going, much less the rest of you people. And he said, so unfortunately, we've got to lay some people off, and you're the low man on the totem pole. You're the newest person here. And so we've got to lay you and a couple of other guys off. And so we all got laid off. And so there's this moment of like, okay, I thought I knew what I was going to be doing for the next foreseeable future in my life. And now I have no idea what in the world it is that I'm going to be doing. So for the second time in two years, I found myself in this space and place in my life where there was just a ton of uncertainty. It shook me to my very core. And I don't know if you've ever had any of those moments in your life, but it just, like I said, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I mean, the person, I had a person that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And then I had a job that I thought I was going to at least be doing for a few more years. And all of a sudden I'm a single man with no job. For the first time in my life, I was told, hey, you know, you're, you're not wanted on the team. You need to go file for unemployment. It's like, my goodness, what do you do in those moments? And it shook me. Again, it shook me to my core. And maybe a better way to say is it really shook me to my identity, down to the very nature of who I thought I was. Like, my, I, I didn't have, my identity up until this point had been tied to the things that I had done. I mean, or, or maybe the people that I was with, and maybe you can relate. Maybe you can relate to being your identity being tied to people or places or people or, uh, or activities that suddenly, when they are removed, you begin to have somewhat of an identity crisis. So in two years, two very major changes in my life left me feeling very confused about who I was and maybe even more so what my purpose was. I went from knowing who I would spend the rest of my life with to single. I went from knowing what I wanted to do for the rest of my life to feeling like um, I was starting over. And I went from collecting a paycheck to to being told to go collect unemployment. Well, the story obviously got better because here I am today. I'm married to my wife. Uh, next month will be 25 years. So we, we, she's put up with me for 25 years. You can pray for her. Yeah. So uh, been together with her for 25 years, um, have four uh, wonderful boys. And as of yesterday, a future daughter-in-law. So God has been good. Yep. And then... I have this amazing job, this calling that God's put on my life that I've now been doing for um, just over 21 years, and I love everything about it. I love what I do. I, I wake up every day full of excitement. Uh, I don't know about you. I hope you don't wake up every day going, oh my gosh, I, I can't wait till Friday. I hope your job isn't so bad that you go, man, I can't wait till Friday gets here so I can experience the weekend. I truly hope that you have found your calling in life and whatever that is, that you wake up on Monday excited about what God's going to use you to do in your job market, in your job place, Monday through Friday, or if it's in the home, what you're going to do in the home Monday through Friday. I hope you wake up with that every single day. So the question then kind of becomes, so what happened? Um, how did I get from that dark, cold place in the summer or, or late fall of, or early fall of 1996 to where I am today? And, and how did I go from the pits to purpose? You know, we think back to the book of, of Genesis. You go back to the Old Testament and you see the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph, right? Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. One man who had a dream at one moment, God revealed to him, uh, the great things that he was going to do in his life, and then suddenly his brothers sell him into slavery, and he went from this moment of, of power and potential and purpose to the pit. 
And then we know that he kind of struggled through that for years. He goes from the pit to slavery in Potiphar's house. And then from Potiphar's house, he eventually ends up in a prison. But then from the prison, God reveals to him all of the things that were happening to him were not for his punishment, but for the preparation of what was going to happen in his life and that God would use him powerfully and that he would discover his purpose as he interpreted a dream for Pharaoh and then becomes the second most powerful man on the planet uh, because of that. So how do we do that? How do we move from places in life where we find ourselves in the pit? How do we move from pit to purpose? Most of us have lived long enough to know that life is full of these changes. Changes that we didn't expect most of the time. Changes that we oftentimes don't like. Some changes are good, but we know a lot of the changes that come our way, especially the ones that are unplanned, are not so good. Um, change is a, and, and the one thing that we understand is that change is, in, is a constant in life. When I went through those uh, difficult changes in my life, I ended up struggling. And I ended up there because I made a mistake that I think a lot of us make. I think a lot of people make in our world today are making in our world today. It's a, a mistake that um, I, I made, a terrible mistake that I made early on in my adulthood. And that's... Um, I'm going to talk about that today. That's one of the things that I want us to look at in the book of Ephesians. It's a mistake that causes identity crisis when we make it. And I don't want you to make it. I don't know. We're going to get to it in a second. But it's a mistake that all of us are very susceptible to make because the culture tells us to. And the world that we live in tells us that this is a, uh, the way that we should. It's a mistake. It doesn't tell us it's a mistake. But it tells us that these are decisions that you be, need to begin to make. And the same thing will happen to you. It's something that happened to me when I got something out of order. And it's the mistake that will happen to you if you get this out of order. And it's a very easy mistake to make. And to discover what that mistake is and how to avoid it, the Apostle Paul gives us some beautiful instruction here in the book of Ephesians. So over the course of the next several weeks, we are going to be studying through the book of Ephesians. Um, and, and just to give you a little background on this, uh, the book of Ephesians isn't really a book. It's a letter. Paul writes this letter while he's in prison, and while he's in prison, he actually writes three letters. He writes, the church, uh, writes to the church in Philippi, to the church in Colossae, and to the church in Ephesus, which is the one that we're going to be studying. And Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is really Paul's greatest word to the church. That's me and you. It's the greatest word recorded in all of Scripture to the church, teaching us what the church is in the mind of God, Again, that's me and you, and what it ought to be in practice before the eyes of men. So who we are before God, and then what we are to do in the eyes of men. So Ephesians chapter 1, if you would look there in verse 1. Listen to what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So... When we read stuff like this, I don't know about you, but when I used to read the Bible, I used to see stuff like this and go, okay, it says right here in big, bold letters at the top of Ephesians 1, it says greeting. It's like, okay, it's just a greeting. It's not important. So let me just get down and skip down to the stuff that's really important. Let me get down to verse 3 and 4. Here's the problem. I, I don't want us to skip over this this morning. This is so important. There's so much knowledge and wisdom packed in here for us. And by the way, the very thing that we, the mistake that I was talking about and referencing earlier, the thing that you and I need to avoid is packed in these verses. And let me just share that with you real quick. 
And these first two verses is the truth that we all need to grab a hold of if we're going to avoid the mistake, again, that I referenced. So let me go ahead and share with you what the mistake is and um, what the mistake is that we all need to avoid. And then we'll look in the rest of the verses and see how we are to avoid making that mistake. So here is the problem. We should never allow our activity to determine our identity. We should never allow our activity to determine our identity. Instead, here's what we should do. We need to allow our activity to flow from our identity. Our activity does not determine our identity. Our activity does not determine our identity. Our, our activity flows from who we are. Okay? And see, that's the problem. See, before, when I went through all of those things in 94 and then in 96, I, went, I was allowing the person that I was with to give me my identity and I was allowing, in 96, the job that I had to give me my identity. I did not allow my identity to determine my activity. Um, identity, if you want to say it this way, identity must precede activity. So who are you? Who are you? What is your identity found in? What do you identify yourself by? Where do you find this? See, for years I had gotten this backwards because I was in a relationship, I was the relationship. Because I had this particular job, I was that job. And when those two things were taken from me, guess what happened? When those activities, spending time with this particular person, doing this particular job, when those two things were removed from me, I found myself in an identity crisis. I did no longer knew who I was. I had a very difficult time in, in grappling with that. And I felt like in this moment, I just remember, like, there's got to be more to life. I feel like I was made for more. That my experience in this world was going to be somehow different or should at least be somehow different. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, essentially, when we look in these first two verses, Paul, he first identifies himself. What was Paul's name before Paul? He had another identity. See, his name was Saul. Saul was uh, the Apostle Paul, before he was, had his name changed, was a guy named Saul who was a Pharisee, and his job was to go around persecuting Christians. That's what he did. He went and arrested people. He persecuted people who were professing faith in Christ and preaching the gospel wherever he went or wherever they went. And so Paul's job was to go and to take them captive and to possibly martyr them. Okay? These are the things that the Apostle Paul did. And so he says, I, my name was Saul. My name is now Paul. I met Jesus, essentially is what Paul is saying, and he changed my identity. Okay? When I met Jesus, he changed my identity. So question to you, has Jesus changed your identity? Has your relationship with Jesus caused you to identify yourself differently than you did before you met him? Or did you just attach your religious affiliation to a church and your religious standing to your identity and go on continuing to do the things that you did before? Did Jesus change your identity? Or did you, knowing who Jesus was, just change your activity? So he says, I, my name was Saul. I met Jesus. He changed my identity with Paul. And because of my change in my identity, I had a change in my activity. See, Paul goes now from being a persecutor of the church to what? One of the biggest builders of the church in church history. I mean, he wrote 
a lot of the New Testament, right? He had a, a significant impact on what the church would become. He was a huge church planner. He went around on these missionary journeys. If you want to read about Paul's life, I encourage you the rest of summer, just grab the book of Acts, read through it. You'll see the birth of the church and you'll see the significance in, in Paul's life and, what, and the significant role that Paul played in the early church. I was once a man who persecuted the church. Now I am a promoter of the church. I, Paul, am an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he identifies himself. And then he addresses them. Look at how he says what he says to the people in Ephesus. By the way, your identity has been changed. My identity has been changed. Your identity has been changed to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, God has changed your identity as well. You were once enemies of God. You were now a servant of God. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You have now been made alive with Jesus Christ. You were once faithful to yourself without no hope in the world. You, are now, you have now been made saints and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul, it's how he addresses them. And then he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants his followers to experience and be recipients of grace and peace. So let me ask you a question. How much grace and peace do you have in your life? How much grace and peace do you experience on a daily basis? Because here's what we know, what we look, what we see when we look around the world, when we turn the news on, when we jump on social media, the one thing or probably the two things that we are lacking is grace and peace. And Paul would say to you saints and Ephesus, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our world is lacking grace and peace. In spite of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, <clears throat> when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may uh, discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. In spite of that warning that we are not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, you and I have been conformed to the patterns of this world. We, again, we turn on the news, we see things, we absorb things, and then we regurgitate the things that we see. We jump on social media. Social media has impacted our world a whole lot more than I think anybody ever anticipated it would. We live in such a negative culture now. Have you, ever, have you noticed yourself being more negative lately towards people? I mean, man, aren't we critical? Man, we can't, listen, we are the biggest, you know, we, we look at Paul saying, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, and here we are being conformed. We are being shaped and molded. I mean, I don't know about you, but man, we, we can find a, a problem for every single solution. You ever notice that? I mean, everything that's going on on social media is negative. Everything that's going on in the world is negative. It's like we have somehow forgotten and gotten to this place in this world where we have forgotten who we are. Number one, we are children of God, called by God to perform the, and carry out the purposes of God in the world as the church, and yet we feel like we are somehow powerless. We feel like somehow that the world is just gone to hell in a handbasket, and there's no way that we are ever going to get it right. And it's like we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten what we have been called to do. And what we have done is we have become more like the world than we have preached the gospel into the world that the world may become more like Jesus. <clears throat> Again, and that's in spite of the warning that we, 
have been given by Paul. We have allowed this culture to change us all. We have become judgmental. We've really become judgmental gossips, again, that can find a problem for every single solution. And when we have problems with people, we don't obey Jesus and go to the person. Do you know what we do when, and I'm saying we see Big C Church, do you know what we do when we have problems with people? Instead of doing what Jesus says and going to the person and addressing the problem with the person, we just go talk to other people about it. Well, where did we learn that from? We learned that from watching people on social media. We take our trash to social media, air out our dirty laundry on social media, and then I'm sure people look at that and go, my goodness, would you look at Jesus? It's not what people think about us. And yet we, we, you know, we post, hey, checked in at Osceola Baptist Church. Very next post is, let me gossip about person A, B, or C. That's who we've become. We have allowed the world to shape us and change us And we have now allowed our activity to be changed because of how we identify ourselves. So the question is, we got to bring it back. Who are you? Who am I? Who has God called us to be? And because of all this, what we see in the world is we see that we live in one of the most depressed times in the history of the world. I mean, my goodness, how many people do you see, how many people do we see struggling with depression? How many people do we see contemplating and many times following through with suicidal thoughts? Why? Well, according to psychology professor Edward Higgins, listen to this. He says, the self has three aspects. The self has three aspects. The actual, the ideal, and the ought self. This is according to psychology. And here's what he goes on to write. He says, an actual self is who you think you are and how you assess your characteristics, such as talent, intelligence, and looks. So the actual self is who you think you are. The ideal self is what you wish you could be. The ought self is what others think you should be. Now, What he goes on to say in particular about his research on depression. He says that um, when there is a mismatch between your actual self, who you think you are, and your ideal self, who you wish you would or could be, when there is a mismatch between that is when we suffer from depression. Now, the beautiful thing is, if, you, if you've kind of read through Scripture very much, the good news is, is that in Christ, my actual and my ideal self are identical. That my identity creates my activity. That what I think of myself and who God says I am are the same. That's, that's, that should be how it happens. So until you identify yourself, you can't know who you really are. You can't know who God says you are. You have to live out in that identity. You have to dig into Scripture and allow God to tell you who you are. And then when you know who you are and your perception of who you are, the, um, the actual self, when you assess your characteristics and your talent and your intelligence and you understand that all those things were given to you by God and for God to be used for His pleasure... And then when you begin to look at the ideal self, the person that you wish you could be, of course we know that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But when it comes to our calling and our activity, those things should line up because of our identity. And if those two things are in alignment, guess what doesn't happen? We don't become depressed. We don't deal with depression because now our activity, if if he is right, Edward Higgins is right. If he is right, then when those two things align, then guess what? 
All should be good. So how is my, identif- how is my identity established in Christ? That's a good question. If, if my identity, out of my identity should flow my activity, then what is my identity in Christ? What does God say about you? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and we're going to shoot through these quickly, um, he unpacks a lot. And so we're not going to try to digest all of it, but we're going to give kind of an overview, and then we're going to set aside the rest of the weeks of this series for us to un- understand, based on our identity that we'll look at briefly today, what is our activity that should flow out of that. Verse, verses 3 through 4. Look at what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Can I just get us to do something real quick? Can you guys just, uh, I want to go, can we say this together? So who has blessed us? What are those two words? Next two words, yeah, in Christ. Can we say those together? In Christ. All right. That he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse four. Even as he chose us, what are the next two words? In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I'm just going to stop there. So what is your identity? Number one, first thing, you can write this down from verses three and four. You and I, we are, according to what Paul says in verse four, we are chosen. You were chosen by God. If you have a relationship with God through Christ Jesus, you are chosen. He chose you in spite of you. I don't know about you, uh, by the way, just uh, kind of a public service announcement here. Uh, we're going to play basketball today at 2 o'clock. If any of you guys would like to break out the sneakers and come up here and join us, uh, we'll be next door in the gym. There's a bunch of guys that are going to play basketball, just kind of have some, some fellowship time together. We're going to do a little devotion before it gets started. So uh, if you guys want to come, man, we invite you to come. Uh, or ladies, if you're a baller, you can come too, all right? Uh, uh, but here's the thing. Today at 2 o'clock, we are going to begin to choose teams, right? Like there's going to be two guys that go, hey, I'll be a captain, I'll be a captain. And then when we, we pick captains, then those two guys begin to go, all right, with the first round of the Osceola Baptist Church draft, I select, and somebody's going to get picked. Now, if you're like me and you experienced this before, you, you probably find yourself sitting there, you're going, all right, man, it's getting late. There's only like two people left. <laughs> you're wondering if you're going to get drafted, you know, and then they pick somebody and then you're the last one standing and you're like, okay, well, at least I made the team. I mean, I'm the only guy left. The teams are uneven. They got to pick somebody and they're like, look, we're just going to play with a ghost man, you know. <laughs> There's that moment of anxiety of tension that comes when you go, oh man, am I going to get chosen? Sometimes we, sometimes some of you played on some of these ball teams where they actually do cut people. And so you try it out and there's that moment of tension where they're going to post a roster or a list that says, hey, here's who the guys are that made the team or the girls are who made the team. And you go up and you check the roster and you're looking for your name. Did you make the team? Well, in spite of you and in spite of me, God chose us. And he didn't choose you the way we choose. He didn't look at the people who are the best and say, I want to put the best people on my team so our team can be the best team. What God did is he looked at me and you while we were yet sinners, while we were lost, while we were in our total depraved minds, while we were not doing good, while we were not honoring him, while we were not loving him. On our worst day, God says, I'm going to choose him, not because he makes my team better, but because I am going to choose him on my team so that I can make him better. God chose you. That's what Paul tells us here in 3 and 4. 
Usually we pick the ones that we know, you know, we know what, they know what they're doing. Hey, he's a, he can dribble well, he can shoot well, he can post up well, whatever. We pick people because they know what they're doing, not God. I love what in the book of uh, Acts, it talks about the disciples that Jesus had chosen. Those disciples had gone on to change the world. And people were amazed at the disciples that he picked because they called them ordinary, uneducated men. The Greek word for that is idiotis, right? He's going, they took a bunch of idiots and changed the world. And so if God can take people who were just ordinary, uneducated men and change the world, guess what he can do? He can use me and you to change the city of Osceola, all of Irwin County, and however far he wants to go with it beyond that, regardless of what the world tells us. You were chosen, and God picked you, again, not because you made the team better, but so he could make you better. God is not in love with some future version of you. He is in love with the version of you right now, because sometimes we get in these places where we're not living for God, and we go, okay, well, God probably isn't very happy with me. He loves you where you are, but he loves you enough not to leave you there. That's where your activity flows out of, hey, I need to identify you. I need to identify you and who you are. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a small town, and I grew up in a small town with no money. I grew up with poor parents. I mean, we were broke. We were poor. And there was this mindset that comes with that, that you will, here's what Stephen's people do. We don't go to college. We don't do anything. We don't, we'll never amount to anything. What the Stevens family does is the Stevens family, Stephen's people that come out of this, what they do is they just go find the first job they can find, and then you just do whatever it is. And see, I think some of the times what happens is, is we begin to identify ourselves in ways like that, that this is how we function, this is how we live, and then we live our lives, we live out these unfulfilled lives where there's no activity that does anything for the kingdom of heaven because we have falsely identified ourselves. And God says, no, 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 I have chosen you, and I have big plans for you, And you can change the world. And you can be a tool of mine to preach the gospel to all nations. And you can do it right there in that place where you work. And somehow, someway, we get caught up in the world and we lose sight of who we are. And then we just become like everybody else, living for the weekend. Verses 5 and 6, look at what he goes on to say. In verse 5 and 6, Paul says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us. What are those next three words? In the beloved. So you are adopted. I don't know if you understand this or not. In an adoption, they don't bring out a list of potential parents to the people, to the young people, to the kids who are going to be adopted and go, hey, which one of these would you like to be your parents? It's the other way around. It's not even really the other way around. Basically, an adoption agency says, hey, here's a child who needs a family, and a family comes in and says, we didn't give birth to you. You, you, God didn't just simply give us to you through uh, biological paths, but we're choosing you. Not because you've done anything right, not because you're special, not because of how you look. We didn't check the DNA records of all your parents to see what their IQs matched up to be. We're just saying we love you and we're adopting you. And that's what God did to me and you. He adopted us as his children. Look in verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through whose blood? His blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of whose grace? His grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to whose purpose? Which he set forth, what are those two words? In Christ. In Christ. So in verses 7 through 10 tell us that, so we went from you were chosen to you were adopted, and now you are forgiven. You're forgiven. I don't know if you understand this, but like if, if you, um, we've all probably been there before, right? Like uh, you've blown it with your husband or wife or your significant other. You've blown it with somebody that you are close to. And there's that moment where um, like you're not going to work for forgiveness. It's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is something that is granted by someone just to simply make the relationship right. And here's what Paul is saying about us in Christ Jesus. He is saying that you have been and I have been, we have been forgiven. In him we have redemption through his blood. He purchased us back. We broke his laws. We broke his relationship, his covenantal relationship. And when we broke it, there was nothing that we could do to earn our way back. But Jesus steps in, pays our debt on the cross. In him we have forgiveness as long as we have placed our faith in it. And because of that, we have a right relationship with the Father. Verses 11 and 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In who? In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope, what are those next two words? In Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In other words, here's what Paul's saying here. You and I are free of performance. We're, we're free of performance. It's not a performance that we have to put on. It's not a performance that we have to wake up and do every week and, and hoping that our performance is good enough and we don't get cut by God. We have been set free from performance. It's not because of works what he says, it is because of the work of Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and 14. He goes on to say this. What are the first two words there? In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. You were sealed. When courts seal records, it's kind of done, right? Like it's done, it's over, it's finished. You were sealed. You and I, we were sealed. It is, Jesus would say it this way when he was on the cross. He looks down from the cross. He's getting ready to give up his last breath. And he says, it is finished. You were sealed. Your redemption paid for. And your, your court case closed. Once you and I profess faith in Christ, the deceiver, the liar, the devil, he cannot come back in and look at me and you and go, man, you blew it so bad last week. I know what you did on July 4th. You are out. You've been cut. You're off the island. He can't do that. Why? Because in Christ, that document's been sealed. You have been forgiven. Case is closed. You cannot be retried. So who are you? 
These are the things that God says about those who have, have accepted his grace by faith. And here is why all of these are important. In these 14 verses that we just read in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uses the, the, those two words, in Christ, 11 times in 14 verses. And there's a reason that the Apostle Paul would use in Christ 14 times in 11 verses. It's because you and I needed to hear in Christ. Your identity, my identity, is not in the things that we do, the people that we associate with. It's in what? Our identity is in Christ. He wants us to understand that in Christ is where our identity lies. What we need to know is that knowing who we are begins with knowing whose we are. You remember when you were a kid? Remember walking around camp, campus at the school? You're like, my daddy could beat up your daddy, right? Like we identified by our parents. We were like, you, you would, if you were around campus, people would say, well, I know who your mama is, or I know who your daddy is, or your teachers, if you were like me, getting in trouble probably would say, hey, I know who your mama and your daddy is. We were identified by not just who we are, but whose we were and whose we are. Knowing our identity and the beginning of you discovering your full identity and really understanding who you are begins with knowing not just who you are, but whose you are. We have been given two things from the text that we see here. We have been given position. We are sons and daughters of the living king. We've been given position and we've been given possession. In him, we have been adopted, and we are therefore heirs with Jesus Christ. Your position as a child of the king and the possessions that come with it should shape, it should shape our identity. It should shape who, what, we, what we know about ourselves. And because of shaping our identity, once we have nailed that down, once we know that, listen, I'm a child of the living king. And I have been called, and I have been set apart. That's what holy means. I have been called, and I have been set apart. Not to live out my days on this earth until my life extinguishes that I can experience Jesus one day in heaven. But I have been called and created by God on purpose, for a purpose, with a purpose, that I might change the world that I live in because of who I am. I went by, um, we were in Memphis this past week. Anybody ever heard of Graceland? Y'all know who lived there, right? It's the king, just not the king that we worship, but it's another king that a lot of people worship back in the 60s, right? Elvis Presley lived in this place, and I'd never been there. Uh, obviously, I think there was a movie that came out recently about Elvis. Um, and so uh, we, we had gone to, a friend of mine had taken us to the Bass Pro Shop, the big pyramid. It's the coolest place ever. If you ever get a chance to go, you should go. Um, and then we were leaving, and we were on our way back from uh, Bass Pro Shop to his house. And he said, hey, do you guys want to see Graceland? I was like... Who doesn't want to see Graceland? So uh, he said, well, we'll drive by. And I was like, cool. And I'm, I'm waiting for this moment where we kind of clear the city of Memphis and we get into these nice rolling hills of, you know, the Memphis area with beautiful trees that out in the middle of nowhere suddenly would open up this beautiful, amazing home and, and lights would shine down on it and the angels would start singing and it would just be one of those moments. And so we're riding along and he says, hey, it's going to be coming up here in just a second on the left side. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's no way Graceland is like here in just a few seconds. And sure enough, I mean, it was like Popeye's chicken, McDonald's, Graceland. 
I'm like, what the heck? Like, did he, was it like this when he lived here? Like, certainly, like, Elvis didn't say, hey, babe, you want me to go next door and grab a Big Mac for you real quick? I'm sure in his day, and what I've been told is that in his day, it was actually a much nicer part of town. Now it's just a rundown part of Memphis. When he lived there, though, it was different. Can you imagine the chaos that surrounded that place when Elvis Presley was alive and lived there? Can you imagine the people that flocked to that area to try to get a glimpse of... Can you imagine how his presence in Memphis in that day changed that whole area of Memphis? What about us? Is our presence, is our identity in who we are in Christ, is it changing the world that we live in? Are we making an impact on anybody other than the people that live in our household? Because out of our identity should flow our activity and who we are and who Paul says we are should shape something about us and how we live our lives. Out of identity flows our activity and we're going to look over the next several weeks at what our activity according to the apostle paul under the inspiration of the holy spirit says our activity should be